Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad to have you. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Um, Last week, we uh, wrapped up a series that we had been in for the last, uh, since the beginning of the year, that was all about talking about identity. We were taking a look at what the Bible has to say about who we are and what our purpose is and where we get our sense of value and significance and worth from. And, and my hope throughout that series, as we spent weeks studying various passages throughout the New Testament, was that in the midst of, of a time of year when people are often trying to rediscover and reinvent themselves, my, my heart was that we might choose instead to receive and to rest in and to, to live out of the identity God offers us through the person and the work of Jesus, that we might allow him to be the one that says who we are. We saw that we are his beloved image-bearing children, his forgiven friends. We're uh, indispensable parts of his body, the church, who's been commissioned to fill the earth with his glory as we embody the servant heart of Jesus himself and as we respond to his reconciling grace by living as ambassadors ambassadors for him in the midst of our world so that others might come to know and receive and to rest in the very identity he offers us through faith in him. And, and I hope what you saw throughout that series is just how life-giving the identity Jesus offers us is, how there is such incredible significance and meaning and purpose that it gives to every area of our lives. But the other thing that I hope was really clear as we spent those weeks taking a look in that series is, is that what you saw is that the identity God offers us through Jesus is not one that you can earn or merit through your own religious activity or your own spiritual devotion or whatever it might be. Instead, it's an identity that you're only able to receive through humble faith. It's not one you earn. If it was, you wouldn't earn it, or if you did, you'd mess it up immediately. Instead, it's an identity we receive through faith, meaning that we don't live or work to receive the identity God offers us through, through Jesus. What happens is we live and work out of the identity he gives us through faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And, and in a roundabout way, that kind of actually brings us to where we're going to head this morning, because... I think the reality is that the season uh, that we're just about to head into as we uh, prepare ourselves for Easter, it's a season known as Lent, it's, it's often a season that is full of, it's just rife with lots of religious duty and obligation and people trying very hard to prove something to God or to earn something from Him. And some of you guys, some of you come from church backgrounds like that, where, where the season of Lent was just about going through some kind of meaningless religious rituals and motions, whether it's giving up something or not eating meat on Fridays, and whatever it was that you gave up, the more, the more, uh, the more miserable that those things made you, apparently, the better it was for you somehow, right? And whether you come from a background like that or not, the reality is that the city we live in, much of the, many of the people in the city we live in view the season that we're about to approach in that kind of a way. And the reality is that that's, that's not what it's about. And, and so what I want to do this week is kind of an aside. Uh, we've spent the last eight weeks or so taking a look at our series on identity. And, um, the, and then coming up for the next, I think, 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to be working our way verse by verse through the book of Philippians and Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I can't wait to do that with you. But what I wanted to do this morning is just to take a little bit of a detour 
and to talk about what, to maybe kind of reframe the season of Lent for us through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the person and the work of Jesus so that we might actually be able to use it for good uh, in our own hearts as we seek to prepare our hearts to be able to celebrate Easter and, and, and enjoy and, and, and just like, just have joy in the midst of celebrating the resurrection, but also so that we might seek to live as good ambassadors to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers in the midst of this coming season. And so with that in mind, let's, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word together and can't wait to just kind of hopefully reframe this season for us and see how God might use it for good in our hearts this year. God, um, man, I, I just, especially this morning, I sense my weakness and so that's probably good, uh, because it's true whether I feel it or not. And so God, as we come to study your word, as I come to teach you, uh, and help us to think rightly about uh, your word, and think rightly about preparing our hearts for this season of Easter, and God, I just absolutely need you. I don't have anything to offer apart from you. And so God, as we study your word, and as we seek to live lives that respond to you, not trying to earn something from you, God, might the good news of the gospel be good news to us that changes us this morning. And so we need you for all of that. Uh, we are so radically dependent on you for every part of our gathering this morning, and we ask, God, that you would meet us in our need for you, that you'd fill us with a reminder of your goodness and your love, that you're the one that satisfies and that nothing else can, and, and so, God, we need you to do all of that in us. I can't do it. We need you to do it in us, and so we're so grateful that uh, you love to do that and that you long to, and so we ask that you would, God, for our good. And for your glory, we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be uh, reading this morning from uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. It's a passage that the season of Lent, in a lot of ways, is kind of a, a reflection of or based on. And it's a passage just after Jesus' baptism, where he heads out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, for a season of fasting and preparation for, for life and ministry. And it reads this way, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes this way. He says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Shocker, right? Like, yeah, obviously, right? Uh, the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up with their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now, I just realized I totally forgot to put that passage up there for you guys, and uh, I'll do that for second service. You can come back if you want to, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, um, but. Easter is about six weeks away right now, and that feels like roughly about an eternity from now. Uh, especially, I have little kids, it's been a long winter, and that feels like two, maybe two eternities from now, feels like. 
And the reality is that the message of Easter is this incredibly joyful announcement that's at the heart of our, our faith as Christians. It's this reminder, it's this proclamation, not just that Jesus died on our, uh, for us, on our behalf, for our sins, but, but more than that, that he rose from death, conquering Satan and sin and death. And it's a message that's full of promise and hope and life, and not just for life one day after our own death, but for power to live a new life here and now, today. It's like the greatest good news of all. And the reality, though, I think is so often is that as good as that good news, it can be really easy for us, even for me as your pastor, to kind of allow Easter to kind of come and go as just another Sunday. Uh, some years it feels, I think, a lot of ways like Easter kind of sneaks up on me. Like it's like, oh, I guess Good Friday is this Friday, and Easter is coming up. We should get ready for that. And I know it should be this really joy-filled season and celebration, but some years, if I'm honest, I kind of have to remind myself that that's what it is, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that if we don't have some like hugely emotional connection at Easter that something is wrong, right? Like emotions are not, like it's, it's, that's not the goal, right? But what I am saying is that I think often that the reason why Easter is just another Sunday, the reason why the good news of the resurrection and the hope that we have through the person and the work of Jesus feels often like good information is because our hearts just aren't ready for it. And what I want to show you this morning as, as we take a look at God's word, as we study is so what I want to show you is that the, at the core, the season of Lent, these, these weeks leading up to, to, to Easter, is really ultimately about helping us to prepare our hearts to be able to really celebrate Easter rightly. And so in order to kind of show you that, what I want to do is I kind of just want to ask three questions this morning. Uh, why aren't our hearts ready to celebrate Easter? What is Lent and how can that help us to prepare our hearts for Easter? And how the gospel transforms the way that we might view or practice the season of Lent. And so three kind of questions I want to walk through together in our time together. So question number one, uh, so why, why aren't our hearts ready for Easter? Like I said, I, I think oftentimes the good news of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection that we celebrate every Easter uh, can often feel like just a reminder of some good information that hasn't changed in a while. And I think the reason why that's often the case, not always, but, but often, is because it's so easy for us to numb ourselves to the reality of our need for a Savior and the new life that he offers us. It is so easy for us to numb ourselves to the reality of our need for a Savior and the new life that he offers us because the reality is we're constantly trying to satisfy that sense of incompleteness that we all have, that sense of, of lack that we all have. We're always trying to satisfy that with, with, with a hunger for other things. If you've been around River City for very long, you'll hear us often talking about the idols of power and control and comfort and approval. And, and on the surface, there are all kinds of things that we try to fill those voids and that hunger for completion in our lives and for fulfillment and satisfaction with. And what's underneath all that stuff on the surface, whether it's pursuit of your career or a spouse or all kinds of stuff, and whatever it is, underneath that stuff are these heart-level desires. And we talk about those as, as source idols, about, like I said, power, control, comfort, and approval. And what happens is that as we pursue these desires, what happens is that they give us a measure of a sense of fulfillment, a sense of, of satisfaction. But what happens is they never truly satisfy, but what they do is they take the edge off for us. They kind of take the edge off for a while, that sense of longing that we have, that sense of incompletion, that sense that things are not as they should be. 
what happens is, is as we pursue those things, what happens is they leave us numb to the good news of the gospel. We're just not that hungry anymore because we've been kind of numbing ourselves with these false feasts, these spiritual snacks that can never really satisfy and never really fulfill, but it just takes the edge off enough so we're not that hungry. See, and the reality is, is that Jesus was no stranger to those kinds of temptations. And in the passage, I think what you see is that we see Jesus facing three of those very similar temptations that we face. And you might be thinking, uh, Brandon, I don't know about you, the passage wasn't on the screen, but when I listened, I did not sense a whole lot of compatibility with my own temptations and the stuff. Like, I don't regularly feel tempted to try to turn rocks into bread. It's not an issue for me, right? Um, and uh, that, that is true on the surface. It is, right? But what I want to help you see is that underneath what's going on behind the ways that Jesus is being tempted are the same things on a heart level that you and I wrestle with. The very same things. See, in the passage, what, what happens is when, when doctors, they try to diagnose a disease, they, they, they start with the symptoms, but the goal is not to just alleviate symptoms. The symptoms reveal something deeper that's going on, the reflection of the disease that's causing them. Similarly, the temptations we see Jesus facing, there, there's something underneath that that's going on. And the temptations you and I face to pursue the idols of power and control and comfort and approval, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things on the surface, but there's something underneath that. And, and at its heart, well, the way temptation works is that it tries to get our hearts to believe that something other than God and something other than his word and his ways are true and right and good and will ultimately fulfill and satisfy and give life to us. And it does that either by presenting us with reasons to doubt God or presenting us with something that appears to be better than him. Functionally, temptation is this, is this invitation that we might worship something else that we might allow something else other than Jesus to be the thing that holds the controlling influence in our hearts and in our lives. And so I want to keep that in mind as we take a look at the, the ways that Jesus is tempted in our passage. And the first one that you see is just in verse 1, verse, or, <laughs> verse 3. He's, the, the devil comes to Jesus, he says, if, if you really are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Now, Jesus is obviously hungry, and uh, Satan says, you know what, go ahead, go make some bread for yourself. And, and, you know, the reality, though, is like, what's so tempting about that, right? Like, there's no sin, that, like, there's nothing, there's no command that's like, thou shalt not eat bagels, you know? Like, it's not, it's not in there. Bagels are good. Bread is good. I had some yesterday, right? Um, and it's not like Jesus is being forced to fast, right? There, you know, there's, there's, there's no command about that. So what's, what's really going on? And and for me, growing up, I think I always thought that, that what was going on here is that, is that the devil's trying to tempt Jesus to, to either prove himself or to doubt himself, to prove who he was or to doubt who he really was. But, but all the commentaries, what all the good commentaries note is that, is that in Satan's, in his assumption, that question, if he says, if you really are here, it's not about getting Jesus to prove or to doubt his own identity. What it is is about getting Jesus to use his identity and his power for his own purposes in his own way, in his own time. You see, one of the things that we see throughout the Bible is specifically in Philippians 2 that Jesus that tells us that Jesus, when he left his position in heaven to become a man, what happened is he voluntarily surrendered the, the independent use of his divine attributes. He didn't cease to become God. He didn't cease to have the power and authority of God. But what he did is he, he voluntarily surrendered the, the independent use of his deity 
And he submitted himself to the Father and said, Father, I will live as you see fit. And I'll be at your discretion. And so for Jesus to use his identity and his power for his own purposes would have been to reject the very mission to which he had been sent by the Father. And and what Satan is really saying to Jesus here, he's saying, you can't trust God to provide for you. He he doesn't really know what you need. That that if if he did, you wouldn't be hungry. And you have the power, so just, just do it yourself. Just take control. You see, the temptation to give into the idol of controls about Jesus is trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father's goodness and provision and instead to say, you know what, instead of humbly trusting and submitting to the Father, I'm going to take things into my own hands. And we are never tempted to do that. At least, like, not that often, right? No, we're tempted towards that stuff all the time, aren't we? God, you know that I really want a spouse, but this is taking forever, so I'm just going to like speed it up in a couple of ways here, right? We're going we're gonna to speed that up. God, God, I know that you can protect my kids and my family, but I have like 30 line lines of defense, and I know every essential oil there is, right? And I'm like a modern-day apothecary. Like we are going to prevent our family from sickness with these things, right? Or God, I know that you're sovereign over my career and my job, but there's this promotion I'm wanting, and so, so I'm going to just take things into my own hands with this. I'm not going to do what I feel like I need to do in order to get that. You see, we often give in to the idols of control in our lives. And we believe that it's only when we're able to control the outcomes of situations that things will go as they should go. But unlike us, Jesus doesn't give in to the false feast of control. And so the devil tries a second route. This time he even quotes the Bible. He brings Jesus to a high spot. Verse 6, he says, If you're the son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it's written that he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against the stone. And what's going on here is that Satan's, Satan's trying to get Jesus to test the Father. See, throughout the Old Testament, purposefully testing God is presented universally as this prideful and sinful rebellion. It is never good. And what you see the devil doing is here is he's masking the seriousness of this rebellious doubt within, with this kind of out-of-context, misapplied quote from Psalm 91. The, the passages about God in that he's quoting uh, in, mis, mis, incorrectly is about God protecting those who fall into danger, uh, not about those who dangerously fall, right? They're very different, they're very different things, right? The passage, right? Because the reality is that just because you find a verse for something doesn't mean you're using the Bible correctly, right? Satan is really good at doing that, right? This is a great example. See, but there's something even more subversive here at play. Again, that, that, that connotation that Satan has, if you really are the son of God. It isn't about, again, it's not about getting Jesus to prove who he is or doubt who he is. It's, instead, it's about getting him to try to doubt the father's love and care for him. It's about getting him to doubt the, the father's approval of him. It's like he's saying, you know, if the father really cared about you, he, he wouldn't let you get hurt in a situation like that. If, if the father, if he really loved you, then, then he would keep you safe. And, and if you test him, then you'll really know if, if what he said about you at your baptism, if that's actually true, then you'll really know. He says, test God. See if he really loves you. See if he really treats you like his son. And we, we do the same things often, right? We never, we doubt that God, what God thinks about us and we try to often ask him for signs to prove it sometimes, don't we? 
God, if you really loved me, you'd give me this thing that you know I long for. God, I've been so obedient. Like, why don't I have the thing that I'm after, the thing I'm looking for? God, if you really loved me, I feel like my life would be going better in this season. I wouldn't have these problems. I see, and again, but Jesus refuses. He refuses to give in to the false feast of, of, of testing God's approval. He chooses to believe what God says is true of him. And so Satan has tempted Jesus with the idols of control and approval. Lastly, he brings out the big guns, brings out the idol of comfort. Verse 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world with their splendor. All this I will give you, he says, if you'll just bow down and worship me. I think on the surface it can kind of look like the idol that Satan's appealing to is the idol of power, but Jesus had already come to rightly rule and reign, and that's not what's going on. Instead, what's going on is that Satan is trying to offer Jesus a shortcut. He's trying to offer him glory without suffering. Jesus, you don't, you don't need to go through those incredibly frustrating years with the knucklehead disciples who just endlessly let you down. We can skip that. You don't, you don't need to go through all the misunderstanding, all the rejection of your family and friends and, and the nation you came to save. You don't need to go through the cross. You don't need to go through all that. I'm offering you the easy way out, the comfortable way out, the shortcut. See, so often like we are, Jesus was tempted to take the easy way out. He was tempted by the lure of comfort to escape the difficulties and the pains and the heartaches of following God. But it is and was a lie. You see, a lie that could never fulfill on the promise and a lie that if followed would have, would have forfeited the very reason Jesus came to save his people from their sins. See, see Jesus faces the same temptations you and I. He faced them. He was tempted to look to control and approval and comfort to be the things that really fulfilled and satisfied, not just in this moment of testing from Satan, but throughout his life. Hebrews chapter 4 says that that he was tempted in every way that we are. The difference, though, is that Jesus did not sin. And that reality is all the more incredible, seeing as the, especially in our passage this morning, the temptations that Jesus faces come in what I think any of us might describe as a moment of severe weakness, right? Uh, most, uh, most scientists would say that fasting for 40 days is about the medical limit of what is possible for the human body without damage happening to your body. So Jesus is at the very weakest spot He is physically, he is running on fumes. And yet what you see, you cannot miss this, is while he might be physically running on fumes, spiritually he is stronger than ever. You see, because his time in the wilderness was about proving, wasn't about proving something to the Father. Remember, he's going into the wilderness with the Father's blessing and approval. The Father's voice literally audibly, this is my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. That's what he's going into the wilderness for. He's not trying to prove anything to God. No, his time in the wilderness is about preparing him for life and ministry by fueling up on the Father's sufficiency and his love. It's about him forcing himself to say, Father, you are the thing that I really need. You are the thing that really satisfies, that your 
your love is what fills up my heart. That time with you is the thing that fulfills and satisfies and gives the life I'm looking for. And Father, I can trust you and your ways that getting power and comfort and control and approval by my own means, that it, it's not actually going to satisfy. It won't actually fulfill. And, and you're in control, so I don't have to be. And your love and your approval of me are sure. I do not need to test it. The true cost of comfort, the easy way out, is not worth it. He's not trying to prove something to the Father. He enters into what will undoubtedly be a hard season of life and ministry. He's trying to remind himself about what is true, what really satisfies. One author puts it this way. He says, we might assume that the wilderness is a place of exile and isolation, and it certainly can be that. But throughout the story of redemption, the wilderness has always been a sacred rendezvous spot for God and his beloved sons and daughters. In the wilderness, we detox from our false attachments and renew our sacred bond with the loving Father. See, that brings us to kind of part two, question two. So, so what is Lent? And how can that actually help us prepare our hearts for Easter? You see, Lent is this 40-day period that commemorates Jesus' time of, of fasting in the midst of the wilderness. And it comes prior to the beginning of his public ministry. It, in the church calendar, it goes from Ash Wednesday, which starts this week on Wednesday, all the way through Good Friday. Um, and it's a time where Christians throughout history, both Protestants and Catholics alike, have chosen to enter a season of, of self-denial, practicing the disciplines of fasting and prayer and sacrificial generosity and in a more focused kind of way. And now, I, I think it can just, it kind of goes without saying that, that uh, it can be really easy to do any of that stuff with really messed up and wrong motives, right? The reality is that you can have any spiritual discipline and spiritual practice be done with the wrong motives. Not just these ones, all of them. It's very easy for us to do that. You see, a spiritual practice can get corrupted into legalism and obligation if they're done in attempts to earn what God's already given us. But, but at their core, the practices and the disciplines of Lent are what they're actually meant to do is to help us as followers of Jesus in a couple of key ways. One is to help us to recognize our true weakness and our need for God's grace and his power. To recognize the reality of our weakness and our need for his strength and his power. They also help us to loosen our grip on the things that we are looking to other than Jesus. To, to be the things that really give life and satisfy so that we can actually cling to him and see that he's the thing that we really long for. He's the thing we're really after. Practicing the disciplines of Lent are intended to help us turn away from the things and the people that can never really satisfy and never really give life, but just kind of take the edge off of our longing for those things. And so in the chance that we might redirect our hearts to the Lord and that we might find the joy and the life that only he can offer us. And so Lent is a chance for us to say that what we really need is God's love. What we really need is his power. What we really need is him. What really satisfies is him. And so the obvious question is to, to ask this, so how can those practices actually help us do that? How do the practices of, of fasting or 
prayer and confession or sacrificial generosity? How might those practices actually help us to prepare our hearts for Easter and to see that Jesus is the thing that really satisfies? And uh, I'll just shoot straight with you. We do not have time to do the deep dive this morning. As I look at the clock, we are already running long. And so I'm going to have to cut stuff, not add stuff this morning. But what I want to say is especially that thinking about the discipline of fasting is especially worthwhile for us to consider as we enter into this season. Fasting can take a lot of forms. It's most traditional sense. It looks like literally not eating. Shocker, right? I don't think that's anyone's surprise to anybody. Uh, sometimes that means skipping a meal. Sometimes it looks like skipping multiple meals in a row. There's also partial fasting, which just looks like giving up a specific kind of food or something for a set shorter period of time. Modern Christians have often found it incredibly helpful to, to kind of give up or to fast from all the kinds of uh, digital distractions that we find ourselves in oftentimes that just seek to kind of like numb us to the realities of the world around us and our need for a savior and and there's all kinds of ways that we can that you can fast and fasting is functionally this willing this willing uh, giving up of something in order to make space for something else it's about giving up something in order to make space for something else and through the lens of the gospel the 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 idea of fasting is that we might give up the things that are stealing our joy, the things that are actually the, the, the false things that never satisfy, that never really give us what we're looking for, that we might be able to give up those things in a, for the midst of the season so that we might actually be able to feast on the thing that really satisfies. We might actually let ourselves be hungry enough to pursue the Lord and to let him be the thing that fills up the spot in us that we long to fill you see, what happens is so often is we live in a culture where it is so easy for us to always be physically or mentally satisfied and stimulated, always. And what happens is, is that if, if eating just makes the, the hurting stop, if the distractions of Netflix just always make the, that discontent go away for a little while, then what happens is we never make room for Jesus to actually do the healing work that he needs to do in us. We're just full enough so that we're not that hungry for him so oftentimes. And so fasting is one of the disciplines of let. It's, it's just willingly giving up some of those things, knowing that they're not the thing we're really looking for, so that we might be able to actually long for, rightly, the thing that actually gives life and satisfies. And so like Jesus heads out into the wilderness to prepare to begin his ministry, Lent is a season where Christians also, there's an invitation. I want to be clear, it is not an obligation in any way. But there's an invitation for us in the midst of this season that we might enter kind of into a season of wilderness, a season of longing, right? And we want to prepare our hearts for Easter, trusting that what Jesus says is actually true, that he is the thing that really satisfies and that we are actually hungrier. We're actually hungrier than we think we know. And what we long for is him. And so Lent is a chance, in the midst of the disciplines of Lent, it's a chance for us to choose to be unsatisfied with the things that we've been looking to, so that we might make room to be satisfied by Jesus himself that we might cling to the promise of something better than the world can offer. What happens is, is that there's this invitation as we enter into a season of longing for what really satisfies. Man, when you get to Easter, you get the reminder of what it is that's come to satisfy. And so there can be life in incredible ways there. 
So lastly, we got to wrap our time up this morning. So we've talked about like why our hearts are often not ready for Easter. We've talked about how Lent can help us with that. But also, I just want to make sure that we close with this to ask the question, how does the gospel transform the way we might view or practice the season of Lent? Like I said, many of you and much of our city comes from a kind of religious background where Lent is just a season of self-denial for the purposes of proving something to God or trying to earn something from him. And that's really functionally all that it's about, right? Sometimes people approach Lent and fasting as, a, as kind of a form of penance, right? We're trying to pay God back. I, I will... I'll deny myself the stuff in order to try to pay you, try to pay you God back for, for all the things that I've done wrong. I'm going to try to make up for the things that I've done wrong by, by denying myself, by, by making myself suffer. And that functionally is absolutely a lie from the pit of hell because functionally what that's saying is that Jesus' suffering on the cross was not enough. And that is a humongous problem. But other times, oftentimes what happens is that people functionally approach Lent and fasting kind of like it's a hunger strike, right? Where it's like, all right, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of, it's like my last resort. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on, I'm gonna fast. I'm gonna go on and try so that, so that you, so that God, you'll kind of meet my demands. I don't really have anything. I don't have any other cards, but I'm gonna kind of go on a kind of like a spiritual hunger strike here. And, and so God will meet our demands. You know, whether that's God, I'll really, I wanna show you I'm ready for a spouse. So like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be disciplined so that you know I'm really ready. Or God, like God, I, I want you to take this temptation away. So I'm just gonna really fast, really hard, so that you'll you'll just fix this problem in me. Or God, I, even good things. Sometimes we you think you got, we, maybe you have a child that's wayward in, in the faith, and you're like God, I'm gonna fast and I'm gonna pray so that so that you'll fix this situation. And so often it's about getting it's like about getting God to meet our demands and to fulfill the things we want Him to do for us. One author puts it this way. He says, God does not play games with us. I know, I need you to hear this. He is not enticed by our bribes or impressed with our asceticism or cowed by our manipulations. The only thing you can prove to God is how desperately undeserving you are of his grace. That's the only thing you have the ability to prove to him. You see, but here's the good news of the gospel. You do not have to pay God back. Not only can you not do it, you don't have to. He already paid the penalty that your sins deserved and that you don't need to bribe him and you don't have to try to manipulate him. He is a good and loving father. He loves to bless. He longs for your good. He has already given up his own son so that you might have the life that he made you to have. There is nothing he will not, no good thing he will not withhold from you. And therefore, Lent for us can not be considered as a time when we try to make things right with God by trying to prove ourselves to him, by denying ourselves in some way, shape, or form, but rather it's a time to reflect on how Jesus has made us right with him. How Jesus has made us right with him and that he is calling us to enjoy the life and the blessings that he's already freely given us in the gospel. What happens so often it's that there is this feast in front of us in the person and the work of Jesus and the life he offers us. But we're too busy sticking our noses in the idols of power and comfort and control, trying to be satisfied with garbage snacks when the, when the bountiful feast of the gospel lays at our feet before us. 
See, Lent's not about this ritualistic giving up of privileges or preferences to secure salvation. It's this reminder for us that Jesus is the one thing that satisfies. He's the one thing. As David wrote that we might, in Psalm 75, that we might believe, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And that might be true in our hearts. What you need to know is the only way you are able to practice Lent in that kind of a way is if you already know God's love for you. That's the only way you can do it, is if you already know who God says you are and his love for you. We just spent eight weeks, church, been trying to remind you about the identity Jesus offers you through his blood shed on your behalf. He makes you his beloved child, his forgiven friend, an indispensable part of his body, the church. He calls you to live as his servant because he served you. You have this incredible identity. You couldn't earn it if you tried for the rest of your life, and you cannot mess it up. And so the only way to enter into the practices of Lent in the, through the lens of longing to be satisfied by Jesus and experience the life he already offers you is when you know who you are. You couldn't, you couldn't get a better identity than you already have. You see, and that's what we're remembering when we celebrate communion together. We're reminding ourselves about the identity Jesus offers us by his shed blood, by his broken body on the cross. Jesus says, the offer of a new identity and new life I have for you, it's secured not by what you do for me, but by faith in what I have done for you. So we choose to remember every week because we forget. And we forget how much we need Jesus and we forget how greatly he has met our need. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. It's a chance for you to remember all that he has done for you on your behalf, the identity his shed blood secures for you so that you might be be able to enter into a season like Lent, a season of choosing to say no to things that feel like they give life, but only a little, so that you might actually be able to find life in the one who can give it to you. And so as we sing and as we worship, as we celebrate the gospel together through song, I just want to encourage you. There's two tables in the back. You can go back and take communion on the left or on the right. But if, if you've trusted Jesus, if he's the one who is your Savior, if he is King and Lord, if he's the one in whom through his work on your behalf that you have right standing with God, then go back and take communion. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, or you come from a background where you are convinced that really what happens is is that it's your performance that is the thing that that shapes your relationship with God, then I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Because God's not after just going through religious rituals and empty motions. He's after hearts that are satisfied by him and that trust completely in him. So as we close, just a few quick next steps. I want to close briefly here. Maybe God is considering some of you, uh, is inviting you to consider practicing Lent this season. If he is, great. I'll include some links in the podcast description box of the sermon uh, to some really helpful links and resources that I've found. Um, But just to shoot straight with you, uh, I come from a background where I've never practiced Lent. 
And for the first time this season, I feel like the Lord is inviting me into that kind of a season. And I just want to be clear. There is no sense of duty or obligation for any of us to fall into this or, or to practice it. But instead, I want to just invite you to ask God, is he inviting you into a season like this to maybe ready your hearts to be satisfied by him? And if not, that's okay. Practicing Lent is not an obligation. It is not a duty. The word Lent, it's not in the Bible. Spoiler alert, right? It's not in there, right? And if, if entering into a specific season of practicing the disciplines of Lent was like essential to your spiritual development, like the apostles would have made that abundantly clear, that that's like something you needed to do, right? And so it's not like this duty or obligation thing. But before you just say no, I would encourage you, ask God if he might be inviting you into it this year. Just ask him if he might. For lots of years, I have been quite happy to never consider thinking about practicing Lent. Just doesn't even sound fun, right? Like denying yourself? Lame, right? I'm not into that. It's a good thing that's only things religious people do, right? Great, I'm clear. We don't have to deal with that, right? But this year, like I said, I have felt God calling me, inviting me into it this year. See, for me, what I sense so often is that how, how prone I am to satiate my hunger with the idol of comfort. For me, a lot of the ways that I pursue, that's just through food. I hate being hungry. I hate that. It's the worst. Nobody wants to be hungry, right? And I don't have to be, because we live in America, right? You don't have to ever be hungry, right? But for this year, I feel like one of the ways that God's inviting me to observe Lent personally is just by uh, tracking my own intake of the food that I have and choosing to intent intentionally limit what I'm eating. It's not about uh, losing weight. I honestly don't know what I weigh right now, and I'm not about to weigh myself. Uh, instead, it's a chance for me to say, God, I, I sense that what I tend to feed my idol of comfort with, the, with food. That's how I feed that idol oftentimes. God, and I don't want to keep feeding an idol that can never satisfy. I want to be satisfied by you. And so choosing to make myself maybe a little bit hungry so that I might actually be able to fill up on the thing that really satisfies, that's good. Like I said, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm just kind of dipping my toes into a season of Lent this year, and I expect to fail, and that's okay, right? Because I'm not trying to prove something to God, and he's not demanding something from me. But I want to follow his invitation into a life of being satisfied by him. I might find that he's the thing that I'm really looking for, and to experience that in life. Help me loosen my grip on the things that I look to other than him. If you feel like God's inviting you to practice Lent, great. Like I said, I'll put some resources in there. You're more than welcome to pursue it. Uh, I am not an expert, and so I'm glad, to ask, I'm glad to talk through any questions you have or process things with you, but I'm a newbie just like many of you, and so that's good. Instead, but I want to encourage you, ask God, don't begin by asking what should you give up, but ask God, what is it that he wants to do in your heart? What are you looking to to maybe satisfy the longings you have that maybe he's inviting you to set aside for a season so that you might be fulfilled by him? Ask him about that first before you ask what you should give up. Lastly, I know we're going long, but this is so important. I just need to close this way. Whether you decide to practice Lent or observe it yourself or not this year, that is totally up to you and between you and God and 
and that's, that's great. But for all of us, God, as who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, God's called us to live as his ambassadors in the midst of the season that we live in. Like I said, the vast majority of our city views the season of Lent as just another thing they're supposed to be doing, and they either have no idea why they're doing it, or it's a season where they feel like they need to work really hard to prove something to or to earn something from God, and the gospel is such good news in the face of religion. The gospel is such good news. And so I want to encourage you, how can you use this season to have spiritual conversations with your friends? Maybe that means choosing to enter into the season of Lent so you can have more authentic conversations with your friends yourself. Maybe share what you're giving up or why. Share about how the gospel is motivating and empowering you. Share about how your view of Lent has changed over time. Maybe you come from a background where it was just religious duty and obligation and the gospel's been shaping you so that it might be an invitation to pursue life in Christ himself. But whether you personally observe Lent uh, or, or, or not, I encourage you, use the season to grow as a good listener and question asker. That's one of the best ways to grow as an ambassador for Christ. When you see your neighbors or your coworkers with ashes on their heads this Wednesday, just ask in a non-weird way, hey, what does Lent mean to you? That's not a weird question, right? It's easy, it's low-hanging fruit. Maybe, what does that mean to you? Or when they give you an answer, maybe you say, hey, can you tell me more about that? I'm just curious. I come from a different background. I'd love to just hear more about what you think about that stuff. When people talk to you about what they're giving up for Lent, maybe you could just ask a question like, hey, what made you decide to give that up? What was it about that thing? How, how, how do you think that giving that thing up will help you to grow spiritually? How might that help you grow spiritually? Just simple, easy questions, not in a prideful, self-righteous kind of way, but just genuine knowing. Listen for ways that the reality of God's grace might be good news to your friends. And I'll just say this, pray for opportunities to keep having spiritual conversations with your friends. Lent is six weeks long. Don't feel like you need to shoot your shot in like one, I got Ash Wednesday, I got a one conversation with my friend. We got to go all in, right? I got to lay out the bridge diagram. We got to get to Jesus here no matter what, or, or we wasted it, right? No, be characterized by being a good question asker and a good listener, and keep praying that God might open up more doors and that you might rest on his timing as he sees fit to help you to proclaim the good news of the gospel, how it changes us. Let's pray. King Jesus, I know I have gone long. God, whatever I had to say this morning that was from you, cause it to sink deeply in, and whatever was from me, just root it out immediately. God, we want to be a people who is satisfied by you. God, in, in a lot of ways, that just has to begin with us repenting of our sin and saying that we look to all kinds of other things to be satisfied than you. God, help us this Lenten season to prepare our hearts to worship you rightly and for the good news of your resurrection, life, and hope to be transformingly, ongoingly transforming good news for our hearts. Help that to happen as we keep sensing our longing and our need for you. And would you keep reminding us, would you help us to keep experiencing this season that you really satisfy, that we are hungrier for you than we think we know, and that you have more of yourself to give than we could ever and we could ever run out of. Might you fill us up with you so that we might overflow into the lives of our neighbors and friends and coworkers in our city, we pray. Amen.